0: Hi, this is Josh English from Six Going On Seven and Attempt Survivors, and
1: you are listening to the new scene.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with a brand new episode. And this week, I've got with me Tim Brown of Loud Sounds. Tim, say hello to everybody. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome, Tim. It's great to have you here as a first-time guest and co-host. And on the show this week, we've got Anna Troxel of Lovelorn. That conversation is coming up in a minute. You're going to love it. We discuss everything. We discuss What's going on with Lovelorn? There's some creepoid talk in there. We discuss Anna's new hardcore band, Mugger, and of course, her podcast, The Convalescent Flanor. That's a recovery based podcast. I encourage you to check it out if you haven't yet. And Lovelorn are at Psycho Las Vegas this week. So if you are attending, make sure you check them out. We're going to get into all that. There's some good recovery talk and myself and Tim are going to be having some good recovery talk in the end as well because we are two recovered wait you're not supposed to say recovered right. Tim we are we are two recovering people in music yes we are we are in recovery actively active active there is no recovered <laughs> the work never stops so it's a jam packed episode i'm excited to be here i'm excited to be here with tim we're going to get into it in a second but first i must ask for your support Support the new scene. I mean, why wouldn't you follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at new scene pod? Follow our YouTube channels. We've got a main channel with full episodes. We've got a clips channel with highlights from our favorite episodes. We've got a new gaming channel where I post gaming content that I create and highlights from Twitch. Subscribe, like, comment, all that good stuff. We've got shirts up at Deathwish Inc. t-shirts and a long sleeve option and reviews. Now, I have great news, everybody. You have heard me asking for Apple Podcasts and Spotify reviews for months and months. Well, we are finally at 100 on Spotify, so we just need to close the gap on Apple Podcasts. Once we get over 100, I'll stop asking. That's my promise to you. But thank you, everybody, for your support. It means a lot, and it makes this show possible. And don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. We've got a great great tour coming up. And I can't wait to go to this myself. One line drawing, Joe McMahon of Smoker Fire and Her Heads on Fire. A tour. All of these bands on one tour. It kicks off October 21st in Boston. Can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Tim, I was talking with Casey recently and we realized that I have interviewed every one of these bands.
1: That rules. And I love when a tour comes together that's so stacked as a fan when you know that the entire time you're going to be enthralled. That's so exciting. It is.
0: And all of these bands are on Iodine, which is cool. I've spoken to all of them and I haven't met all of them. I've uh, Joe from Her Heads on Fire, I've met a couple times, but I'm just excited to go to the show and see everybody in person and just, you know, uh, chop it up. It'll be a party. That's so cool. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Let's talk about some music recommendations here, Tim. Now, I don't mean to put you on the spot. But I'm going to personally recommend Loud Sounds to the people because uh, I've been rocking the Index EP. It's got three songs on it. Everybody listening, I implore you to check it out. It's great post-metal, heavy shoegaze think bands like Psalm or
1: maybe some Deftones in there. Tim, I really like it. I really like what is going on. Thank you so much. That really means a lot. We're super proud of those songs and we're excited to move forward and- come out with a full length soon that's awesome i can't wait and uh to our listeners i'm gonna
0: put a loud sounds song on our new scene 2022 spotify
1: playlist make sure you go and check it out tim what are you into these days what are you listening to i'm listening to I, i'm a weird music listener and that when i find something i like i kind of beat it to death <laughs> yeah. um and then i and then i reach back into the well of of things i haven't listened to in 10 years so I've been listening... Well, the, a new release, I've been listening to Mai by uh, The Deer Hunter. It's their new concept record, which I'm not... It's it's funny. I'm such a huge fan of that band. And mostly, I'd say, what, 80% of their releases are concepts. It's a new story from the one that they've been doing for 10 years, and it's just insane. It hooked me immediately, and it's one of those records, and I'm very excited about this, that has just been constant. I can't seem to get sick of it.
0: I love that. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying about the beating it into the ground. I did that with Greet Death's uh, 2019 record. Oh, and I, I, yes. I, I was just listening to it for like three weeks straight. And now I've cooled off a bit. Not that I you know like the band any less, but I'm like, all right, I, I know the whole thing now. I have to move on
1: and listen to something else. And now I'm starting to do that. Dude, You you got me very hooked into that band i grew up with a guy who was in a band called trench and he i remember them going on tour with greet death years ago and at the time i didn't you know things happen life happens you don't listen well now i listen because of your recommendation and my goodness are they just wonderful
0: yes yes i you know i haven't felt that strongly about a band in a long time
1: and I really like what they're doing, so I love that. That's an important it's an important feeling, you know. It's um it's it's very organic, it's very natural when that happens and it's it's lovely. It's good to to know that things can still stick.
0: Yeah, I, I wait for that feeling, Tim. I love getting that hit when uh you discover a new band and it's really awesome and, and that does happen to me often enough, that's good, but you know, with Greet Death, I was like texting everybody and saying listen to
1: them, check this out. You have to check it out. Did you listen to it yet? It's a, <laughs> it's a good thing. <laughs> you and I are similar. If I'm in a car with somebody listening to something I like, God bless them, because I'm, I'm I'm like the guy watching a movie who like pauses it to tell you the backstory that you don't care about, but I'm telling you the history <laughs> of the band.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I, I like to DJ when I'm in the car. Uh, I've driven a lot of people crazy, seizing control of the music, but listen, that's all in the past, and we're moving forward now. Okay. So make sure you check back in with me and Tim in segment three. We're going to dig into some of Tim's story. We're going to talk about more music stuff. I saw Rage Against the Machine and Run the Jewels at Madison Square Garden this past weekend. I want to talk about that. There's a lot to cover, but right now we are going to speak to Anna Troxel of Lovelorn. Enjoy. here now with anna Troxel. anna welcome to the show
2: hello thanks for having me
0: absolutely it's wonderful to have you here you know you've done so much in life creepoid <laughs> love we've got the new convalescent flanore podcast and a bunch of other stuff we're going to talk about but anna first i must ask you how are you doing today
2: I am doing good. I am living in Austin now these days, and it is just so much easier to live here than in the Northeast. And I find that just my mental health, everything is just so much better just living here.
0: What are some of the ways it's easier? Because I often not I shouldn't say often. I sometimes fantasize about living not in New York City and I feel like it would be easier on my mind and wallet. So tell me some of the ways it's easier.
2: Yeah, wallet is definitely not one of them. Austin is an expensive <laughs> city to live in and is getting more expensive, but I think for me like you get more for your for your money. Like I have a two I have a yard, a backyard, a porch, a back porch. A driveway. What? Like, I don't have to look for parking. I just pull up in front of my house and walk inside. What? Crazy. <laughs> like, you know, I'm still getting used to that. Like, in Philly, it was just like, oh, okay, yeah, that's going to take, I have to budget an extra hour to find parking at the end of the night or whatever. You know what I mean? And I found myself like not going out, not making plans with people because it was such a, like, it was hard to get around sometimes. And, you know, the weather, obviously, I don't, like the cold I don't mind the heat so it's definitely hot (laughs) you know it gets hot as fuck down here but I like that so that's fine with me but the number one the biggest reason that I'm here that Patrick and I moved here and that we will probably be here for the foreseeable future is HAM which is the health uh health alliance for Austin musicians it's the only program like it in the country where you just have to prove that you're a working musician And they're like, cool, here's your health insurance, (laughs) like you would at a normal job. Really? Yeah, it's really amazing. It's robust and thorough and covers mental health, cover like, so it's just like, it's hard to imagine living somewhere else now knowing what I can get here, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's crucial because so many musicians are stuck without insurance or money, and then something happens and everyone puts up a GoFundMe because there's no support.
2: Mm -hmm, Exactly. Like uh, Pat tore his ACL. And his meniscus last summer, and, and I was like, wow, this would have definitely been a GoFundMe situation, but we live here, and so it's covered. It was like 90% covered. So it's amazing. I gotta give a shout out to him. I love you. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know what? You're jogging my memory now. I think we had Pat on this show shortly after the surgery. He was still in recovery.
2: Okay, there you go. <laughs>
0: So I guess he's doing better by now.
2: Yeah, he's good. He's all back, to pretty much back to normal. He still complains, but he's just getting old now, you know? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I just hit 40 years old and very quickly I'm seeing things start to change. It's kind of crazy.
2: Oh my God, I'm hitting 40 in August. So I got a couple more months to be wild.
0: <laughs> Live it up as much as you can. Try <laughs> trying. For the first time in my life, I'm actually watching what I eat and I never, ever, ever thought I would have to do that.
2: Well, there you go. Catches up.
0: <laughs> it certainly does. So now you've been up to a lot, Anna. Let's talk about LoveLorn first. Sure. You put out the excellent LP, What's Your Damage, in 2021. Yes. Yes. So that's been out. We've been touring. We've been getting out there. We've been playing.
2: How has everything been going? It's great. uh Another thing that's cool about Austin is like you can play a lot here. You know, like in, in the Northeast, it's more like, oh, like don't play too much. You know what I mean? I feel like that's like the vibe. Like promoters are like, don't play a lot because people won't come out. Like you need to like you know build up the desire.
0: I noticed that's a thing with Philly bands. They won't play Philly often, and then it'll be a big thing when they do play Philly.
2: Totally. And I think yeah. like I get that. Like if you're a b- big band, you know what I mean. But like when you're starting up, like a new band should play all the time. You should play as much as you possibly can because that's how you grow your audience. And like that was something that Creepoid always like one of our like work ethic models was say yes you know like we just always tried to say yes if we could and that like served us really well but I found like with Lovelorn it was hard to do that because like people were like oh no 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 no." you want to like make people want you but here in Austin you could play Every day, all day, nobody cares. They're like, promoters are like, yeah, cool, play tomorrow, play the next day. Who gi- Who gives a shit? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, that's great. And it, and it enables you to not only build your audience and your fan base, but to make money, which is like what we all want to do, you know, as well. It's like, it'd be cool if this would just be like my main thing and I didn't have to do this other, all this other bullshit stuff to like keep myself afloat. So, that's been really cool. It's just been able to build up Love, Learn, here and, like, get a whole new fan base, really, of just, like, people that didn't know Creepoid, you know? Like, as I feel like in Philly and and a lo- lots of places in the Northeast in general, it was really just, like, a Creepoid fans that are kind of, like, kind of wish it was Creepoid, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah. like, starting, moving somewhere else and still being a young, new, fresh band, you were we were able to get, like, new fans that didn't necessarily remember us from anything else and just were like into this, you know?
0: Yeah. And I, I think that's the way to go because it would
2: suck if you're just tied to the old thing, you know? And and
0: that's what people are expecting. Exactly.
2: Yeah. So I think we've finally gotten over that hump of people coming and hope, like wondering what it's going to be like and not really understanding. And like, You know, I get it. Like I like Green Boy too, you know? (laughs) Like I'm like, but this is like a new thing, you know? And I talk to lots of musicians that have gone through this and inevitably whenever you start a new project, there's this like the they wanna talk about the old thing and you're like, Yeah, but like I'm doing this now, you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if this is what the artist wants to
0: do, I think it serves them better to try something completely different. Because if I don't know, if you start a new band and it's kinda like the old band, people are gonna be like, well, I would just rather listen to the old band. I think
2: totally. That's how we felt. Or we like, if I wanted to keep doing like a shoegazy grungy band like Creepoid, we would have just like gotten two other people to be in the band because Pat and I were still down to be in bands. You know what I mean? Like, so it was just like that. It was time for Creepoid to end, and we were like, I think we've done that for like. Maybe we would do that again one day, but like for for now, like I don't really feel the desire to write a song like that. Because I already wrote those songs, you know, I feel right. like I did it, you know, I did what I can do with the, with that genre for the time being.
0: There's only so much you can do with it. I, I've been in similar bands for most of my life. And the thing I'm doing now, I'm just trying to make as different as possible. One, to challenge myself. And two, I did all the other stuff already. I, I, I got to try something else. Totally.
2: Yeah. And, uh, you know, Pat and I <laughs> recently in the last few months have started another band <laughs> On top of all, how busy we are. So um, we are started a a hardcore band with two of our homies here in Austin who are also a couple. Uh, Lisa, who's in a band down here called The Well, and Daniel, who's in like Radioactivity and a bunch of like punk bands. And it's been sick to like do a hardcore band because I was never in a band till I married Pat. Like, I was never a musician until, like, I was almost 30. So I always kind of felt this, like, I never got to be in a hardcore band. You know what I mean? Like, I I miss that, like, cringy, terrible high school band experience. But I was always been, you know what I mean? I'm like, I wish I had made that one record where you're like, ah, my God, can you believe this, you know? So we were kind of like, well, why don't we just do a hardcore band now? You know what I mean? Like, which is sort of an audacious idea for, like, a woman who's about to turn 40 to be like yeah i'm about to be the front woman of this hardcore band i was like is it crazy but i was like you know what i don't care like i just want to try it cuz it's like you know, i just want to try something different
0: no this is fantastic this is uh the band mugger you're talking about Correct. right yeah this is mugger yeah i'm excited to hear this is there music or anything yet
2: it's coming. Yeah, we just finished the demo, and we're going to start um, figuring out what we want to do with it. We have about a month so we can perform again because Lisa is going to Europe with the, uh, with her other project, The Well. So we have a little bit of time to figure out what we want to do.
0: No, and what you're saying with uh, starting the hardcore band at 40, this is a dream of mine. There you go. I, I, I still dream. Now, I was in a hardcore band a few years ago, but I, I still dream of fronting a hardcore band somewhere, somehow. And I don't care if I'm 40 or 50,
2: as long as I'm physically able, I will do it. Absolutely. I didn't get to do it when I was younger. Exactly. That's how I feel. And I, I often wonder why I didn't feel like that was something I could do. Because I was like pretty heavily involved in the hardcore punk scene in Philadelphia in the late 90s and early 00s. I was at every fucking show. And it's weird. like I didn't see a ton of women like perf- as performers you know like there were women for sure in the scene but not a ton performing and i i kind of kicked myself that it took somebody else like my husband to be like you could do that and i'm like i don't know he's like you can do it <laughs> so <laughs> I'll, I'll try <laughs> Which, you know, eventually made him very angry because, well, not like in a teasing way, but he was like, oh, cool. Like the first band you're in like is successful and you get like offender sponsorship. That's cool. I've just been in like bands my whole life and I've never gotten anything, but that's all right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you you got a later start and we have all these connections now.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> so you said you weren't in your first band until you were 30.
2: Almost 30. I think I was like 28. Pat and I got married when I was 27. And we started doing Creepoid like pretty much right after that. So right after I turned 28, uh, they, they went down the basement, they got snowed in for a weekend, they wrote a record and they're like, hey, like, come on down. We need a female vocal. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. They're like, just try, you know? <laughs> <I'm> like, okay. <laughs> you know? And like, I really credit my bandmates, especially Sean Miller for not being annoyed at Pat for being like, I want my wife to be in the band. Oh, also she like, she doesn't know how to play. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like that must've been a pretty, you know, like not super easy pill to swallow. I don't know if I would be that welcoming and accommodating if somebody like approached me with that scenario now. And and Sean was just so cool about it and like taught me to play bass and taught me to sing and taught me to record. Like just was like just made me feel like equal to them, you know, even though I clearly was not, <laughs> but like, he never made me feel like an amateur. He made me feel like we were all in it together.
0: I love that because my first band, I was kind of a disaster. And I, mm. I was I barely even learned the songs on bass. And the singer guitar player took the time to sit down with me and like, show me everything and invest the time and to getting me where I need to be. And I'm so happy because like, all, that's what I wanted more than anything in the world was to be in a band and play shows.
2: Yeah. And that's what I, I love about being in a band is the camaraderie that happens from being, if you, if you're smart and you pick the right people to be in a band with, it's the best fucking thing in the world because there's nothing that compares to that feeling of really finding your, your homies, your tribe. And then when you go on tour and you have to face all these obstacles every single day, but you have your fucking people that are like, no, we got this. And like supporting one another, and like we fought constantly of course of course because <laughs> you know I mean? we're all yeah. so, so alpha it was like all like three majorly alpha people in a band but we <laughs> respected each other and like listened to one another and always had each other's backs really when it came down to it and like i think i learned so much about just like being a human from being in a band like beyond the base stuff beyond that like that part of it just like how to like hang in there when shit seems really fucked up and desperate and like to voice how you need to people and to like have it echoed back to you is like the best feeling in the world
0: so prior to age 30 did you want to be in a band like did you think oh, i want to do this but i just you know there was no opportunity
2: i think i always wanted to be a performer in some sense you know like i don't know if i specifically thought like i want to be in a band like a punk band but like from the age of like you know, when the first time I saw The Little Mermaid, yeah, I memorized every song and would like make my parents like listen to me. I'd be like, "All right, sit down, here it is," you know, <laughs> and like regale them with my version of the Little Mermaid songs. And then, like, as I got older, just loved musicals and like Les Mis and like Miss Saigon, all that shit that I was obsessed with being able to to do that as much as I could. But I was a punk, right? So when I went to high school, it was like where i went it was not cool to try out for the plays and you know but for, oh yeah. yeah same here yeah. it was like you were a freak yeah, yeah that was like the nerd shit but like the cool it was cool to be on stage crew so like that's what i would do like i was on stage crew doing like the lights and like building props and building the shit for the shows like that's what i really really liked and i wonder like if i had had that opportunity of that it things would have like shook out differently if it would have seemed more attainable but by the time i was like going to shows i just like loved being there so it wasn't something i thought like dang i wish i could do this it just honestly really didn't occur to me until like later way later in life yeah same
0: here I, it happened later for me well i was in my first band when i was 24 and then another one close to when i was 30 but it took a while because i don't know i was just too afraid i and i couldn't like I couldn't get it together myself, and mm-hmm. I, I just I just didn't have the ability to do anything when I was younger.
2: <laughs> anything? <laughs> Nothing.
0: Yeah. Lucky I was even able to dress myself.
2: Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, even in Greepwood, I I always knew like, okay, yeah, I get it, y'all. Like, I'm new to bass. I'm not the best player, best bass player in the world by any means. But I had a background in performance art. You know, like I went to grad school and most of my work in grad school was performative. So I felt comfortable in front of a crowd. So I think like I knew like, okay, I do have something I can bring to this this table. You know, like I have skills that maybe they don't fit exactly, but I know what I can bring to make myself like a vital and important part of this piece.
0: No, and that's a big piece of it. Absolutely. If you know what you're doing and you know how to work a crowd, like that goes a long way. Yeah. So we came up in the same
2: scene, didn't we? Where'd you go to high school? I went to Colonel Doherty. Ah, in okay. Yeah, shout out CD Two G.
0: So, did you go to shows in like Bucks County and Philly
2: too? Most, I didn't go to a ton of shows in the suburbs because I did not have a car and I lived in Philly. <laughs> so, most of the shows I was going to was you know like the Salag St- and Kill Time and the First Unitarian Church and the Tracadero. But I had friends that went to you know LaSalle and McDevitt and all that shit. So, like they sometimes I'm like, come pick me up. <laughs> And they would take me to shows out in the burbs, but that was less frequently. Whereas, like the truck, I was there like three times a week.
0: I got you. Where in Philly did you grow up?
2: I grew up in the Northeast in uh, Burr Homes, like super close to Fox Chase. So, Pat and I always fight about, you know, he'll always say, I'm from Philly. I'm like, Well, you grew up in the suburbs. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, You're from Willow Grove. He's like, just ten minutes. Away. I'm like, oh just say, like, I'm from Philly. You're from the suburbs. <laughs> yeah,
0: no, the, the Philly people are very, very specific yeah. about the dividing lines. Like, oh, very. You know, if I'm talking to someone not from Philly, I'll say I'm from Philly to make it easier on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I'm talking to someone from Philly or or who knows, I'm from Bucks County.
2: Oh, of course. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, even um, you know that band Zorn. No, they're a pretty cool. Like they do. Like I guess. I don't know how exactly I would describe them, but it's like a punk band. Uh but yeah. they're from uh uh the valley, you know, and they they toured through Texas recently. My husband did the show at the bar I work at in Austin. And I was stoked to see him because I'm like, oh sick, they're from like near us, you know? And they came in and they were like, hey, what's up? Like, we're we're from Philly. I was like, oh sick, where where from? Like knowing and they're and they noticed my accent immediately. And they're like, oh, we're from the valley. <laughs> <laughs> and then rolled over, you know, immediately. And I was like, it's cool, man. Like, I get it. When you're in Texas, you'll say you're from Philly, <laughs> but like not to someone from Philly. Cause, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, sick. Like, I grew up in the Northeast. Like, oh, I grew up in the valley. <laughs> 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 I,
0: I, it's okay. just funny how it always comes down to that. Uh huh. So I was reading a, a lot about you recently, Anna, interviews and various different things. And, you know, Working with your husband, Pat, in the band must be great Mm. because your guys are on the same page. You love each other. It's just got to work out easier than, say, if you're in like a four or five piece band. But has there ever been an instance where just you couldn't get on the same page and like one or both of you had to compromise?
2: Oh, yes, for sure. Like we we disagree a lot. about. (laughs) I mean, we both have, like I said, we're both very alpha. We both have very strong opinions we listen to a lot of the same music, but then we also listen to, we each individually listen to music that the other person doesn't listen to, you know? So I think that we come to music with uh, different ideas sometimes about what it's going to look like. And if there's anything I would say that's not great about Lovelorn is that there's just the two of us. So when we disagree, it's just like, there's not somebody else to give input, you know? Whereas like with Creepoid and now with Mugger, when we, we disagree, there's somebody else to offer their insight and their opinion. And I definitely, I respond really well to critique in general. Like I can go along with people. If you're if two people are telling me this part should change, it's easier for me to be like, okay, the part should change. You know, but if it's just me and my husband, I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. uh, what do you mean it should change? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. It's harder sometimes to remain a bandmate when it's just the two of us. It's easier to feel like, oh, this is my husband talking to me. But when there's four people in a room, it's easier to be like, oh, we're bandmates right now and to like kind of put on a different hat and be more like open to feedback and like i like i said i went to art school so i'm used to critique i'm used to people telling me what's wrong about my work so like that wasn't something that i struggled with it's and I I'm a big fan of that I think critique is good but it's hard when it's your husband you know and likewise for him I'm sure when I'm your wife is being like I hate that (laughs) (laughs) like it's a no you know so we often have to and and I sometimes I don't like to compromise sometimes like to change the part per se I think sometimes it's good to just trust the other person and be like okay if you really believe in it then we're gonna go with what you think because some sometimes in my experience, if you try to like meet somewhere in the middle, it becomes sort of muddled and it's yeah. better to just trust somebody's vision with it. Be like, well, this isn't exactly the way I would want to do it. But like, I do believe and trust in you. So like, let's go with that
0: then. That makes sense. I'm trying to figure out the line where is it just me being stubborn or I, do I just not want to listen to the other person? Because, right. you know, sometimes I'll play a guitar riff and someone will make a face and I'll be like, what, what's that face for? What? Yeah. like?" And it's like. is it really not good or am i just pushing ahead because they don't like it i it's it can be confusing sometimes for sure yeah it's I, i imagine even more if you're married to the person
2: right because it's like you know what you know the music we create it's personal it's not like a math problem you know it's like comes from within so to have people critique it is not always super easy especially when it's someone you love and like something that's worked for Pat and I is to just show each other pretty early on what we're working on. Because if you take it, like you say I go, I spend like 10 hours working on something and then I show it to him and he hates it. That's a lot harder <laughs> of a build to swallow, you know what I mean? Which has definitely happened. And I'm like, yes. I just fucking worked on it all day. And you know, now I know like if I have an idea, like let me just run it by him pretty early on because then I can get some feedback before I spend all day on it. And then I'm salty And like feelings get in the way, you know, like if I'm not too attached to it yet is always like, that's one of the ways we've learned is best for us. I just think working collaboratively always leads to something better for me than what I would have done on my own. You know, and I think like, likewise, when someone shows me something, I think that I have good feedback to give. So, like, when people used to always ask Creepoid in interviews, like, oh, how do you write? How do you write? And we would be like, oh, we write together. And I feel like people never believed us. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, but surely like one person's the main songwriter. We're like, not really. Like, we all kind of take turns over who has the shell, the idea, and then we all give input and that was what worked for us. But I think like often I hear about bands where somebody like kind of is the main ringleader and like, that's cool. Like if that's the way you want to work, but I wouldn't want to be in a band like that. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be the ringleader and I wouldn't want to be the one taking the orders either. Like for me, it's like, that's what's sick that like, oh, you're showing me something I wouldn't have thought about and vice versa.
0: Absolutely. And you know what? I'll be honest. I would want to be the (laughs) ringleader but i I can't do it. I'm not that prolific i i can <laughs> yeah. I can come up with a verse and a chorus like nobody's business, but I'm so bad at the rest of it. yeah, I would just keep repeating the same parts. I need people to help me. Spice it up and make it a little more interesting well, that's good that you know you know is there something that you struggle with when you're writing like is there somewhere's Pat has to step in to help you plug in the pieces or does it just depend on the song?
2: It really depends I mean i I feel like one of my strengths is like coming up with melodies pretty quickly. I can kind of hear things pretty early on about how I want a, st- a song to sound like vocally. You know, so that's but like, like I said, I'm not the best player bass player in the world. So sometimes Pat with Lovelearn specifically will be like, I want the bass to be like this and he'll like hum apart. And I can't do that. Like, I don't have an ear like that. You know what I mean? Like, so I can get there and we can kind of get something that works together. But I'm definitely not like the type of bass player that can just bust that out but now I'm in a band with somebody that can do that because my (laughs) bandmate Lisa is a sick bass player. And so like, that's cool for like, now I'm being Pat, I'm being like, Oh, could, could you do this? Like, and she's like, yeah, sure. Just bust it out. You know? I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Like in all of her, but like, like it goes both ways because she said like, we talked, we were talking recently and she said like, I just can't believe how fast we've been writing these songs. It just feels like so effortless because I think we're all like kind of doing the thing we're best at.
0: Absolutely. So what is on the horizon? Is there more tours? Is there more shows? Yeah. Is there more music coming?
2: Yeah, we're busy busy bees. Um, Love, Lauren, playing in Austin a lot. Obviously, we're also going to play Psycho Vegas this year, which will be very exciting. Oh, uh, nice. Vegas in August will be crazy, but it'll be It's a good thing uh, you don't mind the heat. I don't mind the heat, and it's not humid there, so it'll be okay. So we're probably going to tour out to that and then tour back. And then Mugger has some dates in Texas as well that we're going to be touring with these two amazing bands, uh, Detox from Austin and Mexican Coke from Houston. Uh, We're going to do a little Texas run in August as well. And then in October, we'll be back on the East Coast doing uh, a run with Lovelorn, hitting up All our fave spots in October, the best time of the year to be on the East Coast in the fall. Yeah.
0: Nice. So you mentioned in Austin, like it's not that big a deal to just keep playing if you're in a band. So with that in mind, how often will you play? Like what's your schedule? How does it shake out?
2: It depends, but like usually two to three times a month. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So you can make make money, keep your name. In the the like zeitgeist of people's attention span, you know, and like play different clubs, like see what works for you. Like play here, play there, play south, play west. You know, yeah,
0: you could essentially just keep playing shows in Texas and forever be okay. It's such a giant state. There's like it's like different worlds.
2: Yeah, I was a little nervous about living somewhere that was so landlocked, and like when you're in on the East Coast in Philly, you know, you can bop around to so many cities so easily and play like new york play boston play baltimore dc like really really without going on tour you know what i mean like just like a weekend but i was really surprised and like stoked to find out like there there's thriving music scenes in all the cities in texas it's not just austin you know like dallas san antonio houston even Galveston now, the our version of the Valley in Austin, like they all have good music scenes. So you can bop around in a very similar way just in Texas and play a lot.
0: I love that. That's awesome. So Anna, you are now a fellow podcaster. Yes. <laughs> you have a new podcast, The Convalescent Flaneur, and it is a recovery-based podcast. I've listened to a couple episodes and I really love this because I'm heavily involved in recovery. I attend. I work in recovery. I help others in recovery. I am helped in recovery. So I hear these stories almost every day. Yeah. So to hear them with artists that I love is like icing on the cake. And you know, you have you have an all-star lineup. We've got Laura Jean Grace, we've got Jeff Rickley, we've got Nicole Francis from Soft Kill. Excellent guest list. I really love what you're doing. Tell us, how did you decide to start the podcast?
2: I had been thinking about doing it for a while. Uh, I guess, like during COVID, I kind of thought like that could be a cool thing to do. You know, um, my part of my recovery was being in an inpatient program in uh, the New York State Psychi- Psychiatric Institute, where I was for almost three months, and it was research based. So there was a group of eating disorder people. There was a group of effective behavior disordered people. And there was a group of addicts that were coming like down from addiction essentially. And I was really floored when I spoke to a lot of those folks with how similar our stories were. And I was like, wow, this, I've never thought about it in this way, but like, I think probably it could have gone, it could have been alcohol for me. It could have been drugs for me. It could have been a sex addiction for me, like for a million reasons, it became food but it was never really about the food in the same way that addiction is not about the substance. You know, it's about the compulsion. And and I didn't have like the, you know, mental or emotional ram to really dive into that at the time, because I was actively just trying to to stop being anorexic, but it always was in my mind. And I always was interested in how the the world of recovery is connected. And uh, my homie, my label mate, Uh, Josh Robbins, who's also on 6131 in a band called Late Bloomer, does a podcast called Spinning Out, where you talk about one record. And uh, we talked about Silver Jew's American Water. And I told him, I warned him, I'm like, I'm going to cry throughout the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's just the most, it's the best record of all time. And it brought up a lot for both of us, I think, just talking about that record. And so I talked a lot about my eating disorder. I didn't really plan on doing it, but it came up. And he talked a lot about his recovery, which I knew nothing about because he had always just told me he was straight edge. And I didn't question that, you know, so it, it was really revealing in so many ways. And, you know, I shared that podcast and I had people tell me, oh, I love, you know, I knew it was you. Like I, I turned it on and my husband walked in the room and he was like, that's Anna. You know what I mean? They're like <laughs> your voice. I knew, I knew it was your voice. So I thought, well, maybe like, maybe I could do it now. Like maybe now's a good time, you know, like. And it just felt right. And I was like, I'm going to try to do it, you know? And I really didn't know what it would be like or if people would say yes. But what I found is that people generally want to talk about their recovery. You know, I think like beyond just wanting to share their story, also like genuinely wanting to help people and to serve others who could benefit from it. So it's been really easy to get people to agree. You know, I anticipated having to be like, "Oh, could you please?" People are like, "Yes, I would love to." So that's been like really sick to see, like how willing and able people are to help others because they know they know what it's like and they've they've been through it.
0: Exactly, I say it all the time on this show. It's one of my favorite topics to discuss because it's a significant part of my life. But also, I say it all the time on this show. I had no clue what to do or where to turn to or what options there were. So I think it's always important to have the conversation so that who knows who is out there who might hear this, that we might help.
2: Exactly, you know, like I, I've i said many times on my show, I'm glad I was not anorexic during social media. Very glad. However, I think there might've been a little bit of access to information that that went against that and showed me, oh, there are actual programs where you could go and like get better. And instead, you know, it's the early O's, so I'm going to the library, (laughs) you know, like desperately trying to find any information I can get my hands on. And there wasn't a lot of advice or uh, people with experience with eating disorders that I had access to. Like it took, it delayed my treatment and delayed getting better for so long, because I really had to fight to to find that information. So anything I think you can put out in the world that someone might stumble upon, like, so amazing.
0: Yeah, I got lucky. Well, one, I was in denial for so long that I had a problem. Mm. And then when I realized that I really had a problem, thankfully, my sister got me into a psychiatrist, and I started on some medicine, but that ended up actually just making things worse. And I was just super resistant to everything. So I just had to grind myself down into the ground so far that I was finally willing to give things that worked a shot.
2: Totally. Yeah. I relate to that as yeah. well, you know, like just being in denial about it and, and within eating disorders, there's such a comparison component, uh, with like, I'm not sick and I'm not that sick. I'm sick, but I'm not really sick or, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I'm not I know I'm starving myself, but I do eat <laughs> and I yeah. kept fucking with my head, you know? I'm like, and I think I talked to a lot of people with addiction where they're like, yeah, I, I kept saying, well, I know this isn't super great, but I still have a job or I still have a wife or whatever. Right. So it can't be that bad. And sort of right. the bargaining that happens with yourself that you just are, you, unfortunately I think you just, you can't get well until you're ready to get well.
0: Exactly. You have to make the decision. Now I listened to the episode where you detailed the beginning of your story of recovery, and I was blown away by the, just by how much identification I had with everything you said, because, you know, I think with addiction, it truly is just the feelings are the same, no matter what it is you're doing, because, you know, you suffered from a d- eating disorder. Uh, I was deep into drugs and alcohol, but everything you said I could relate to the isolation and not being able to see yourself for who you are and just this compulsion to, to keep doing things. And it was, I was, I was blown
2: away. Yeah. I, I feel that likewise, when I hear stories of, of addiction, like, like I said, like in the hospital where I, I was like, wow, like, yeah, we're the same. Like it all just started with this fear or this, whatever, you know, like the hole inside me that I thought would never get filled that finally I found something that filled it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like starvation worked so well. It just, I always ex- try to explain like, it's not that I wanted to be thin. I didn't want my body to be thin. It was the feeling of thinness that was so addiction addictive. And like, I just had to have that feeling of escape Like of disappearing, of not being inside my body, of being somewhere else. And that I hear echoed so many with so many of my guests on my podcast of just wanting to erase the self. And like I took that to a real physical place, you know, like actually erasing my body, but it's the same impulse. And again, like once you stop that addictive behavior, you think, okay, I'm okay now right? Like, all right, good. I stopped doing this, the shitty thing that was destroying my life. Like I should probably be all right now. And then begins this whole other layer to the game where you're like, oh, now fuck. Now I have to actually figure out why I did that to begin with.
0: Right. You know, now that you have a number of years uh, away from the, the active damage you were doing to yourself and all that, have you looked at that? Have you, have you uncovered some of what got you into that place in the first place?
2: Yes. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) I've done a lot of work around it. Um, I actually wrote a memoir, which I'm trying to get published next year, um, which served for a good vehicle to do a lot of that deep digging. Uh, Even beyond like being in therapy, I think sometimes you just need to do like some solo internal work, you know, like on your own, like take the tools you're learning in therapy, but then just like, also be doing some, some deep diving on your own. Cause I mean, for me, I'm not always super honest in therapy. I will say, you know, sometimes I'm like, even like, like sometimes I keep just for me and you know, that's its own (laughs) can of worms. But yeah, like I just know, like it's, it's, it's so much clearer to me now and becomes clearer every single day with every day I get in between me being actively anorexic. It becomes something that I think about as something in the past. That I have to keep an eye on. I have to be very like watchful of my eating and the ways I think about my body and weight. And at the same time, I it doesn't. It's not like a present danger where I feel like oh, I really could slip at any moment. You know, I feel like I've got a good chunk of time and I'm on pretty solid ground. But I know the things that led up to me being sick. Those are the things I kind of have to be really careful about. You know, like those are the things that are going to get me in trouble, not necessarily like the eating stuff, not, not that stuff. It's more the like, when I want to be perfect, you know, when I'm, I'm finding that kick up in other ways, whether that's in the band, I want to be the perfect bandmate or the, uh, at my job, I want to be the perfect employee. I want to be needless. I want everyone to be able to give me what they need. They want me to do. And I just do it, you know, like. Those are the things I have to be like, okay, where's that coming from? Where's that coming from? And like, why was I taught that that's how you get love? You know, what, who taught me that? Like, I have to be perfect to be deserving of love. And just like trying to examine the, all that like childhood trauma shit, that, you know, you get taught as a kid for better or for worse, this is how you build up your ego. This is how you can feel good about yourself. And those ways did not ultimately work for me. They worked for a while. And then eventually they didn't work. And I had to figure out a new way to feel good about myself. And that way became starvation, you know? So, like, it's those same things that I have to remember. How do I feel good about myself? How do I take care of me? Very difficult. (laughs) The the work never stops. Never stops. I'm not one of those people
0: who can just stop and then be cool. I I have to do work every day uh, to to stay on top of this thing. And it sounds like you're the same.
2: Yes, for sure. Yeah. I think I'm just very naturally inquisitive and curious so uh, there's that human desire to understand where you want to know like why me like why did i become anorexic like me who didn't care about her body like you know what i mean like in high school it wasn't like i was a kid that was like oh like i need to lose weight i need to be thin like that was not a thought i ever had i never wanted to be like thin until i became anorexic and then it quickly just spiraled into this complete obsession so it it just was so confusing you know i'm like why did this happen and so i think i just wanted to like dive and figure out like all the ways that that food was used as a love language in my family and like eating was signifying i love you you love me i'm safe i'm okay you know and like that's why i used it as like fuck you like how can i say fuck you to my family my italian catholic family not oh, eating
0: yeah Denial that's like food. <laughs> that's like the biggest fuck you to an italian family
2: yes you know <laughs> and i think i was unable to say to my family i need help i am struggling i feel lonely i feel isolated you know what i mean i couldn't do that it, it was too painful to do that but instead i found a way to show them i was unhappy you know and that was how i communicated it to them uh. and i was like here's how I'm going to show you that I'm sick by making myself look physically ill.
0: Wow. That's, that's such deep insight. It's crazy when you think about it.
2: Yeah. It's crazy the the lengths to which my psyche did this without me even knowing about it at the time. You know what right? I mean? I'm not like at all aware of this at the time. I'm not thinking, here's how I'm going to do it. You know, I'm thinking I feel fat. You know, <laughs> like, like, that's what I feel. I feel fat. I should probably lose weight. And then, instantly became obsessed with losing weight. It happened so fast. I really cannot underline enough how quickly I went from like, I think I'm going to join a gym and lose five pounds to like, I've lost 50 pounds in six months, you know, and like, so quickly became something I wanted to do to something I had no control over.
0: That's how it happens. It happens quick. I, I never planned to become a drug addict, but mm, it, mm. you know, now with years of recovery and all this stuff, I can look back and see that I was critically painfully shy and introverted, mm-hmm. maybe some untreated PTSD, and I just happened to take this one drug this one night, and I felt completely uninhibited, and I was like, oh, okay, here's the answer. Exactly. And then you're off to the races, and it sounds like that's what happened to you too. Like I listened to the episode where you told... The beginning of your story, and you know, just it was very compelling. And I have to say, the cliffhanger really worked because (laughs) because the episode ended, and I was like, "I got to hear how this ends." I hear this, and I looked, and there you didn't tell the rest of the story yet. Not yet. No, not yet. (laughs) All right, so folks, you got to tune into that. But can you share how you ultimately? Began to help yourself, or do you want to save that for you? No, your no, of course
2: not. I'll give you a, a shorter version. Um, yeah, give me but, a taste. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll speed things up between like me, like f- kind of figuring out, like, okay, fuck, like I am now into this other part of this experience where I have no control over this. And I'm waking up every morning, and instead of saying, I don't want to eat today, I'm saying, I really, really want to eat today. How- I hope I can eat today but still not being able to eat, you know, like, so that was like the next level where I realized things had gotten completely out of control to the point where I could not get myself to eat. And I couldn't ask my parents for help. I just went desperately on like, well, maybe things will get better once I graduate from college. Maybe that'll be the thing, you know? Oh, okay. Maybe things will get better when I go, I'm going to move to New York. Maybe things will be better then. Maybe things will get better when I get this job, this cool job in photography and in fashion in New York, you know? And there was just never the thing and it only got worse and worse and worse. And I, um, somebody approached me on the subway, um, taking the six uptown. She said, I see you every day. Um, I know you have anorexia. My sister was anorexic. Please get help and walked away. And it really shook me to my core because nobody had said that to me. Not my friends, not my family, not my professors. Nobody had ever said that, you know, even though I knew people thought something was up. So I thought, okay, something is wrong. You know, <laughs> like, like this is bad if so, my physical body is indicating this. And um, the next day I walked past the sign in a window that said. Help end eating disorders. And it was a peer-led support group that was free every Thursday on 34th Street in New York City. And it had one of those little tags, you know, at the bottom of the flyers where you could pull it off and it had the number. You know. So I grabbed one of those tags. It took me a while. I didn't call them right away. But eventually I worked up the nerve. I called and I went. And that support group just it set everything into motion. You know, like I was finally with people that understood. Like it didn't make me change my behavior. At the time, it didn't make me stop being anorexic, but at least I was with people that understood that I didn't want to be thin, that it was this feeling I was chasing and that I couldn't stop it, like the compulsive end of it, you know? And like that camaraderie of feeling like, oh, my people, like get it. Like that felt so great to be a part of. And that led to me finding my therapist who hooked me up with a woman who gave me a scholarship to go to outpatient. Wasn't enough for me, and so I finally, finally was able to find a program that I could go to to go inpatient. And the main factor that was keeping me from getting well when I wanted to get well was money. You know, I looked at a lot of programs and they were around a thousand dollars a day which was just like laughable. Like it literally made me laugh. Like I was like, well, there's no way I'm ever getting better. You know, like I'm like, well, a right. thousand a day, you know, and they were recommending you'll be there for two to three months. So, you know, you can do the math like that's unattainable. That's not something that's going to happen for me. So there was a big chunk in my story where I kind of resigned myself to being anorexic. And I thought, well, I'll figure out a way to, to survive. You know, I know I'm never going to be happy. I know I'm never going to eat, but at least I'll like get through my life basically. So finding the inpatient program that took me for free saved my life. You know, that's how I got better. And that's how I gained weight. I would not have done it on my own. I do not believe for one second I would have been able to do it on my own because I really at that point wanted to. Like I say, I woke up every day and said, I want to gain weight. I want to eat. Please, please, please let me eat. Please let me eat. And I couldn't. So I had to be in a program where they locked the doors behind me and they said you don't eat today, you don't use the phone. You don't eat today, you don't see your friends when they come visit you. You don't leave the the unit, you don't go outside. You know, and like that works for me. Everybody's different, but for me I needed a very strict like no bullshit like program that like straightened me up, got me to gain the weight and then I could start doing the other work, you know, the, the other shit that comes after.
0: Right. Now, once you gain the weight, and I say that in quotes, because you were probably just a normal weight. Now. Right?
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Was it hard at first to get used to you to the new healthy you?
2: Yes, very difficult, not in a like, I don't like this body. You know what I mean? Not like, oh, I feel gross, or I feel fat again, in my normal, like, body, pre anorexic body. It was just different it was just like like a kind of like who's this now you know what i mean (laughs) like who's this alien body that i'm not used to seeing and i don't know who she is you know like that feeling of just being like an alien within yourself and when i was really sick i you might have heard me talk about on my podcast i i othered my anorexia as an octopus oh yes so yeah my octopus was still there right so my octopus is still there being like yeah you can do this now if you want to but like we all know you're coming back to me baby you know what i mean (laughs) like that was kind of the vibe he was like okay i'll let you gain this weight but like this isn't gonna last and right the rebelliousness of me worked now to fight against him like i was like well no fuck you you know what i mean i just did all this work i'm not doing it again because it was not easy to gain weight i was astounded by how long it took me to get my body back that i was finally like i don't want to lose it again you know because it's just like it's dangerous it's health. like there's so many health factors like you know similar to drug and alcohol addiction that come into play where you know you're putting your body at physical risk as well as the emotional stuff and i just was tired of doing that right
0: that story you tell with the woman on the train who just told you you were anorexic and you need help that's that's pretty amazing. It reminded me i was a uh, I used to take the train down to Philly and I would always go right to Oscars in mm. center city mm-hmm. and one day I went there and i I was blasted and i I just did too many drugs and I was sitting at the bar and I felt like I was going to like keel over and die yeah and and this guy sitting next to me he I hear him mutter to his friends, this guy's on." Uh, and he said the drug I was on, mm. and I wanted to get up and like kill him. Yes, I, I,
2: <laughs> but he was right. Yeah, well, that's he why I right. wanted to kill him because he's yeah. all you.
0: It's just so amazing, like how much we can't see ourselves. Um, and I heard this so much in your episode of the Convalescent flanore where you shared your story. Folks, please go listen to it. I, it's a, it's a great podcast and a great story. But you were telling your story, and it just reminded me of myself because. I was 62 140 pounds. Mm-hmm. I I was ghost white, but I thought I was God's gift to everything. I was like, I look so good. Everyone <laughs> loves me.
2: Yeah, I'm killing it.
0: <laughs> I'm like so cool, you know, and I look at pictures of myself from that time and I'm like, Jesus Christ, nobody no wonder everybody was constantly trying to feed me, mm-hmm. asking me if I was okay or like buying me food or like obsessing about my weight. Yeah, for sure. It's
2: crazy. Yeah, I like i don't have any i i don't have any photographs of my anorexic body at all i got rid of all of them because they were just really horrific and too painful to see there wasn't a ton of them because i actively avoided documentation if i could um but there are, i i was in art school when i was sick so You know, one of the ways I dealt with my illness was to take photographs of my body, and so that artwork remains. You know, and like that's one of the ways that I was able to see what I looked like. You know, I couldn't see it when I looked in the mirror fully. Um, I didn't like looking in the mirror. I didn't like looking at my body at all, so I I avoided that as well. But I, I was curious because, like you, like people were telling me, like what's up with you you know what I mean? like, <laughs> you know and like so and I also had a uh one of the other people that approached me in New York was a photographer and he said he wanted to take my photograph and I said no 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 you know he's like oh I, w- I would like to because I don't think you know what you look like and it was that same instant rage that you had like fuck you dude like I don't know what I look like. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about, you know? And also I have a BFA in photography. Okay. You know what I mean? I was like, I can take my own picture. And so I did that, that like pretty soon after he said that to me and I still have those pictures and they're pretty painful to see, you know what I mean? Cause I, I, like, again, I think, I think back to when I was actually that I looked like that and I didn't know I looked like that. You know, I thought I'm fooling everyone. Everybody thinks I'm okay. You know, like I'm doing a great job.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's crazy. The veil, the addiction puts over you where you really think
2: everything's okay. Absolutely. Yeah, I always tell people, I worked really, really hard to convince my friends and family that I didn't have an eating disorder. But I think I worked the hardest to convince myself that I didn't have an eating disorder because of X, Y, and Z. You know, it was like, I always had a reason why it wasn't that bad.
0: Yeah and there there would be these little glimmers of realization that would just make me so sad. I remember I was going somewhere with my brother and I was like sick to my stomach and puking like like I always was. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Oh, yeah, I'm sick." And he's like, "You're always sick." And I was like, "Oh." oh so deep. just like yeah, just those little like moments that make you see what's really going on. It, it's you know, it's it's wild how this whole thing works.
2: Yeah. I feel like that there was like these brief moments where I was able to like peer out from within, you know what I mean? And and be like, Oh fuck this or that or whatever, you know? And then I would just go right back like a clam, you know, like digging deep, like just burying under the sand, like just being like, well, whatever will be, will be, you know, (laughs) like there was this just kind of like not actively suicidal, but kind of like very risky behavior. Well, I don't care if I live or die, you know, because I'm so tired of living this life that I'm just, I just want the suffering to stop. So I just sort of like, didn't want to examine things closely because it just seems so like tedious. It's just too much. I can't handle that. I'm just trying to survive.
0: Exactly. You're speaking my language. Yeah. I, I can relate <laughs> yeah. I can relate to everything you're saying. So, I mean, do you have temptation still to go back to the way it used to be? Like for me, I'm not in active danger anymore because I do so much work on myself. It's not like if one bad thing happens, I'm going to go back to the, the way I used to be. But I still dream about it at least four times a week, maybe mm-hmm. five times a week. And like, you know, I'll think about it and be like, oh, maybe I could do it now because it's been a while. But mm-hmm. ultimately, I know that that's a terrible idea and I don't want to go back to that life. So do you, I mean, do you ever have thoughts
2: like that? Oh, for sure. You know, like yeah. there's like the thing about eating is that you have to do it, <laughs> yeah. you know, and you have to eat all day, every day. And so I have to face the thing that almost destroyed me constantly and figure out how to have a healthy relationship with food. Um, and also be a woman who has a body, uh, who's turning 40, uh, who gets photographed for her job. And people share those photographs of you performing in, in a band or whatever. And like, I have to like have, I have fleeting moments of dissatisfaction with my body, which I think are within the realm of normalcy, you know, but I, it's almost like I'm not even allowed to have those feelings. Cause I, I know that they could lead to me being hypercritical about my body as a means to escape other things that aren't going well in my life, you know? So I have to be like, ah, you know, (laughs) I can't think (laughs) about that or, you know, I can't, I can't diet. I can't do that. I can't go to a gym. I can't exercise. Like those, those are healthy things for a lot, for most people, but they're not healthy for me. And so I, you can't even do them at all. No, I cannot do that. I, I like, I'll do, you know, yoga, things like that. I know I'll keep within the range of safety, but yeah. I did try to go to a gym. I would say maybe four or five years ago. And, and it was something I talked a lot about before I did it. I talked with Pat, my husband, and we, we went together in the beginning. It took a lot of convincing to get him to agree to it, you know, rightfully so, <laughs> and I pretty pretty quickly realized, like, I am not here because I don't like my body. I am here for other reasons. I'm here because I want that feeling again. The you know what I mean, not thinness, the feeling. Exactly. You know, and I was able to stop. It was pretty. You know what I mean. I was like, I don't want to go here anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean, like that's scary. And but it was interesting to see, like, that's that was ten years plus from being out of the hospital, from being recovered. And it was still something like a dangerous place for me, a dangerous activity. So I have to constantly, like you, be kind of watchful of when things pop up and I wonder, I could do that now or I could do that now. And I, no, I fucking can't do that now. <laughs> you know? Like, what yeah. do you mean? You can't do that? Are you crazy? You know? And I have to be like, no, no, I can't. But to still have to eat all day, every day, it's not something I can just cut out like the gym. I can just cut out exercise for my life and never have to think about it. But with food, I have to eat every single day and I still have the impulse of when things aren't going well, if I have a shitty day, if I have like bad news, if I'm disappointed, my impulse is to skip a meal. That, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Well, I'm not going to eat today. And it feels horrible to eat <laughs> you know
0: what I mean? yeah that's my thing when you know some people overeat to compensate for things but the first thing for me if i'm going through some kind of distress or something like that i don't eat like i'll right. lose
2: weight exactly i think a lot of folks do that you know yeah. and because and it's like it's a it's all tied up into pleasure and like how you experience pleasure and if, if that feeling of denial can be pleasurable you know and like for me that that makes it feel okay because i've given up something that i like so i've like punished myself kind of you know what i mean and like so now i have atoned for whatever fucking thing was like bad but like i have to recognize that i know if i skip one meal today that i might skip it again tomorrow
0: exactly it it only takes one time to, to get back on the train i i know that from experience yeah but at least you have the the foresight to to know why you're doing things and pull back when you need to, like with the gym. Like for example, I don't like being in bars mm-hmm. unless there's a purpose. I'll go to watch a band right. and then leave. But if my friends are like, Hey, we're hanging out at this bar. Do you want to come by? I'll be like,
2: no, right No, Cause you know, it's dangerous.
0: Yeah. As they say, if I'm in the barbershop,
2: I'm going to want to get a haircut. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <I didn't laughs> ever, I've never heard that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Makes sense for sure. And you just have to like, you know, like, I'm sure you just question like, well, why would I go to a bar? Why would, why would I do that? You know, (laughs) like, like, that's not a place where I belong right now. And for better or for worse, that's just what I try to do now is like set myself up for success. It doesn't always feel good. Sometimes I actively feel like a failure because I, I can't do, I'm like my, the anorexic in me is like, you you lost it. You know what I mean? Like you had it for a minute. You could do this. You had this super human power where you didn't need to eat. And you've revealed yourself to the world now as this just like crumbling human like everyone else. You know, I still feel that way sometimes. I'm like, I had it and I lost it. You know, like because I'm eating this meal that I didn't want to eat, but I'm eating it. But I have to challenge it and be like, well, no, it's actually like you got to eat, girl.
0: <laughs> yeah. Eating is like really good for you. I've eating, heard.
2: Yeah. Apparently... You do need to do it. I've tried it, y'all. Your body like starts to actually fall apart. <laughs> I w- w- ten out of ten would not recommend.
0: No, no, let's let's avoid <laughs> yeah. it if we can, folks. So, so how are you liking the world of podcasting? You know, I wandered into it kind of haphazardly, which I am glad yeah. because if I saw the number of great podcasts out there, or and all that stuff, I might have gotten discouraged. But mm-hmm. I just I got inspired by a podcast, and I was just like, I like what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Let me try to do that. But how are you liking the whole thing?
2: I love it. I really do. It's cool to just do something that's really just like pure. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Like it's just to help people and to like help me. And you know what I mean? Like it's so good for me. I get so much out of it about talking about my recovery. It keeps me well for that day. You know, it keeps me honest. I'm like, well, I got to do the fucking thing I'm talking about. You know what I mean? And like, I think it helps my guests. And I think it helps the people that, that listen in. So like just to do something that's, I don't want any money from it. I don't want to get famous for it. I don't want it to, you know, I don't want anything other than just what it actually is, is to like spread hope. Like that's my only impetus. So it's been amazing. Like I really, I walk out of doing my like, uh, whatever you would want to call it, like an interview, whatever, like recording the episode. And I just feel great. You know, like it's like a, I feel the way that I used to feel when I was trying to get fucking thin, you know, it's like not that good, but it's close. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, exactly. I'm racked with anxiety in the hour leading up to the conversation. But when it's done, I feel almost high. I'm like, yeah. I'm going to play 10 video games. I'm going <laughs> to eat a square of dark chocolate. It's going to be crazy.
2: Yeah. You're like, well, a wild night. <laughs> <laughs>
0: all right well let's recap now if you have not heard creepoid i mean i really recommend doing that right (laughs) yeah please why not i mean it's a great band and of course we have to listen to lovelorn that's anna's current band i love the band i love the record what's your damage i'm looking forward to more they're going to be out at psycho las vegas there's going to be plenty of shows. And plenty of opportunities to see you. Yes.
2: Yes, definitely.
0: And when can we expect new music? Is it too early to ask?
2: Too early to say. Yeah, we're taking a. We're we're. It's going to be coming. We have stuff, but we have to like kind of pace ourselves a little bit.
0: And that's the way to do it. You yeah. Know? Why rush?
2: Yeah, I don't. I know that there's this like constant need for content now, but I would just rather do something up
0: that feels good to me. You know. Exactly, and with, with a band. That's the way it should be done. You know, like a podcast, you got to kind of crank them out every week. But a right. band, you can go two, three years between records, and
2: that's fine. Yeah, that's fine with me.
0: And, of course, Mugger. Now, Anna is fronting a hardcore band. I can't wait to hear this. This is going to be cool. <laughs> yeah. When can we expect that again?
2: Uh, Probably the fall. Okay. Yeah.
0: So I'm looking forward to that. And Oh, yeah. Anna has written her first memoir, egg held up to candlelight now you're still looking for a publisher
2: yes yes i am
0: all right so if there's any publishers out there listening to this uh i mean
2: come on come on get in touch with (laughs) anna
0: listen listen to her story in the her episode of the convalescent flanore and i mean if it's half as good as that publishers are going to be beating down the door
2: i feel pretty good about it y'all i really do i don't say that to my own horn but like like i've said on this podcast I wasn't a musician growing up, like, but well I've been writing since like the second I learned how, so like I know that this is something I'm good at, and I know that my book will be useful and helpful, not only to people with eating disorder folks, but like just people that have gone through suffering and gone through trauma at any point in their lives. I think that they will get a lot out of it.
0: A hundred percent, like I mentioned earlier, just listening to your story there's so many threads connected and, you know, it just, whatever the addiction is, I think there's so many similarities. So hearing about how we help ourselves and each other, I think it can just do good for anybody suffering. Absolutely. So Anna, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to more and I'm looking forward to more from the podcast and this was great. Thank you.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was so great to be a guest on a host. I'm like, I just show up and talk. Great.
0: <laughs> right. On the rare yes. instances, I do that. It's always nice to have the uh, positions flip there.
2: Yeah. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much.
0: And there you have it, Anna Troxel. That was an incredible conversation. It was great to finally have Anna on the show. You know, I dig all the music she's made over the years so much. We grew up in the same area, which is always awesome. Creepoid, so good. Love what her and Pat are doing with Lovelorn, and I wish them continued success. And of course, The Convalescent Flaneur. This is a great podcast. And uh, to our listeners, I really recommend that you go and listen to it and uh, also rate it five stars on Spotify. You know, I'm always going to push that for my fellow podcasters. It helps us out. But check out the podcast. Anna's got a great selection of guests. And uh, I recommend episode nine, where it's just Anna, and she really goes into detail on her story and her recovery
1: journey. And it, it was really compelling. It was great. I still got to listen to that one. I listened to a couple and it's, I love podcasts where people are just talking naturally about things that are important to them. It comes through, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I can listen
0: to recovery stories all day. And like I was telling Anna when I was speaking with her, i you know, even though we struggled with different things, her with anorexia, me with drugs, the the feelings are the same. I felt the same things she felt. Having to work through that and and just coming out on the other side of it, well, and uh, being able to thrive and function and everything now is uh, is such a great thing. But yeah, I mean, great conversation.
1: Yeah, th- and that's something that really struck me too. Is you know, most of the stories that I hear about recovery, given that I'm recovering from uh, alcohol, is surrounding drugs and alcohol. So it is it it really struck me how similar that is and and that's it seems to be a common thread, you know, is that you hear somebody's story and and that's the point of talking to other uh people in recovery or other sober people is that you you find common threads and as they say, you take what you need and you leave the rest. You know what I mean? Exactly. Remember when She said, you know, it could have easily
0: been anything else like alcohol or drugs or sex. Or I think she said that's so true. Like, you know, whatever it is, whatever you happen to stumble upon when you're in that state, that's the thing that ends up consuming you. For me, it happened
1: to be drugs. It could have easily been anything else. Like, uh, I think about that all the time. Yeah. All the time. I'm, I feel so lucky that I never, uh, you know, took a Xanax. I, I never got hooked onto like benzos or those types of things. And I I truly feel like that's just a stroke of luck that my path never brought me to to those kinds of things. You know what I mean? I was was never in my late teens, early twenties on an airplane and nervous and having to take a Xanax. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) So
0: Tim, I'm interested in some of your story as well. Now you are a sober person in music. Talk about that. What did you struggle with? How bad did it get? And how did you overcome it?
1: Uh yeah, the the big struggle is alcohol, baby. <laughs> um <laughs> and it's it's always been that. I'm um I'm 31 now. I knew that I had a problem with alcohol when I was about 17. Wow. I I started a I grew up in a very small and if you're young there, boring hometown in central New York, right outside of Syracuse. And everybody The thing you do there when you're a young teenager is you drink and you smoke cigarettes and you cause trouble. So I started drinking when I was 13, 14. And when I was 17, I started to notice that I would count the days that I didn't drink, if that makes sense, um, or count the weekends that I didn't drink. So to me, that's where it started as a problem, because that's when I started to notice that I'm doing things a little bit differently than everybody else when I was younger, uh, going to parties was whatever. I only really wanted to go there to drink. And I very much, this is something I notice, And I notice other, uh, addicts say is that everything in that room or everything at that party, I wanted to be mine. Do you know what I'm saying in terms of alcohol? So if (laughs) you know, you're, you're a young teen or you're in high school or early college and you know, you get a 30 pack of beer to split. Well, I was, the entire time just trying to count how many that I could get and how many I would get at the end of the night. And then I would, you know, stow away beers to take home with me just in case and Then I'd fall asleep next to an open beer. And this is at like 18. So, well, wow. that progresses, uh, that progressed. I moved to, uh, New York city with my brother when I was about 22. And unfortunately the, the first and only job I can get was at a bar. And that's <laughs> where, um, I'm in, Mind you, these are also partly some lovely uh, memories. You know, I loved the friends that I had there at the time, but I was just in my early 20s and doing early 20s things, right? And that's kind of and something you talked about with Anna is a lot of what was going on in my head as well. Am I actually in trouble here or am I just in my early 20s working at a bar, drinking too late, doing coke to stay up? You know what I mean? Yeah. And then uh, an old friend of mine uh, called and said that his band had an opening for a bassist. And I said, hell yeah, I want to do that. I've been wanting to, to be a more serious musician. i played guitar since I was a really young kid, and I wanted to do that. So I joined that band, and they were already pretty established at the time, and we were living in four different states. So our manager of that band at the time had us all move up to Rhode Island so we can all have a home base. And then that's where things really got that's where things really got bad, where I that's when I started to know it was not just me in my twenties that it was it was me with dependency issues because, you know, the the once innocent Coke habits from New York City, oh, I just work at a bar, those followed me to Rhode Island. And when I moved up here with that band, that's where I really started trying to hide how much I was drinking. Um, and that's also, uh, funnily enough, when I started getting paid in alcohol, <laughs> when, when you're in a band and, you know, a venue can't give you a ton of money or the money that your band needs. They pay you in a 30 rack of Naren Gansett beer, baby.
2: <laughs> <So>.
1: <laughs> did you try to find new drug connections
0: when you moved up there? Like when I moved to New York City, I had no connections. And that was like the
1: first thing I did. Yeah, and it was it was scary. <laughs> you know what I mean cuz um you know all through my 20s I was saying well that's not me and that's something that Anna brought up too is I I worked really really hard to convince myself that I was just going through a bad phase and so you know when I got up to Providence and I couldn't I didn't know how to get coke anymore um well that was a problem <laughs> and I had to <laughs> I had to you know make friends that knew how to get it. And I had to get jobs in bars so that my biggest thing was hiding, hiding in plain sight. I wanted to make sure that I was around people that drank more or did more drugs than me so that I was never the biggest problem, (laughs) if that makes sense. And I never, I was never a sloppy drunk. I was never getting pulled out of a bar. I was never, I was never the sloppiest in the room. I was never the worst in the room. And I did that on purpose because I wanted to hide. At this point, I knew that it was an issue. So now you're presented with dangers, as you know, dangers to your to your active using, like being aggressively fucked up, and having people say, "Hey, man, I think you got a problem." <laughs> there was there was one time, oh, this was so bad. The band that I was in at the time, we just had a new single out, and I was playing bass in that band, and this single was bass. It was written around this bass line, and we were playing a show at Arlene's in New York, and we had packed it. It was a line out the door. We had crushed like merch sales uh that night it was incredible well we i i got too excited because you know i used to live in new york city and all my friends are there so why not take a couple shots and then take some more shots on top of whatever drinking i was doing on my own time um (laughs) and i played that whole song a half step up (laughs) without knowing it until watching the video later so i just essentially i i just fucked that whole song (laughs) <laughs> it was you know we're pushing this we're we're pushing it to radio stations we're pushing it to our fans and all that bullshit and i just wrecked it and so that's the first time that band sat me down and said like hey man might <laughs> might want to might want to chill um did uh did that work or did you continue uh on with the destruction for a long time i just kept hiding more so yeah it didn't work <laughs> i just <laughs> i just realized that i what happened with that band we all lived in the same house so i then Made up whatever excuse. Oh, I got to move out. I, uh, you know, it's cheaper if I go live with uh, my other friend over here, and you know, get a, a job at this bar over here, which is you know, ten minutes down the road. Um, <laughs> and I did just that. I I lived with a a wonderful dude, a friend of mine, James. But I knew that James would not be judgmental. James would not he would not question me on my drinking or or drug use or anything like that. And I got a bar, I got a bar job, maybe a, a three second walk down the road. <laughs> this local old Irish pub, it was the worst. And that's where shit really fell apart. That's where the, you know, I would go into work with a a bottle of um Coke, like Coca-Cola, like soda. And I would take a sip out of it and, and top it off with whiskey. And then, you know, in the matter of like two months, I was just, <laughs> it had like, a sip of Coke and then the rest was whiskey. Oh man. And I had, <laughs> you know, like shooters of, Um, I thought that I was so fucking smart. I had shooters of like fireball whiskey in my car. And then I also had cinnamon gum so that <laughs> if I ever got pulled over and the cop, you know, you smells like you're drinking. I would point to the, the cinnamon gum and be like, oh, I just had, you know, cinnamon gum. And I do work. I thought I never got pulled over somehow, but I always thought that, I'd be so smart as to say like, yeah, I'd be a little honest. Yeah, I just got off work at the bar. It was a double shift. I did have one beer, but I'm just exhausted, man. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I, I was really stupid with drinking and driving back when I still lived in the suburbs or, you know, like operated there more. And I once you, you remember Sparks when that was out. Mm-mm. Sparks is an energy drink slash alcohol drink. Oh, shit. Is it was it like the same era as Four loco? Yeah, no. Uh, it was before. It was like two thousand three, two thousand four. Okay, and it, it looks like a big energy drink can. Mm-hmm. So I would just drive around and drink those. And I'm like, oh, if I get pulled over, I'll just tell the cop it's an energy drink. Dude, we think we're
1: geniuses. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean, really stupid, really stupid stuff. It was <laughs> it, it was insane that I never got caught, but yeah well to to cap off my whole story uh basically that band broke up, and that band was also a hundred percent of our lives. We really put our all into it, and it just you know it it just wasn't working out and um a, t- a lot of us left the band and I think it was i don't know if that happened in February, about six months later, I put myself in rehab because it had gotten uncontrollable and i i you know i feel i feel as though the way that I tell my story it seems. It seems not that bad, but it was really bad. I, I was sick every single day, which is something that I heard you say. But my body my body wasn't accepting uh food. I, I had to have like a <laughs> in my scientific way of thinking, I had to have alcohol in my stomach in order to keep food down. So what I would do instead of, you know, getting sick and, and throwing up every time I ate, which was something that would happen, I would just kind of eat once a day and then take a bunch of shots and hopefully I Fell asleep before I got sick. Yeah. Um. So I was just constantly, constantly sick. I, I,
0: yeah. I, I was like that too. I, uh, I wouldn't get high and then eat because eating would kill the high. I would eat and then get high because uh, if I did it the reverse way, you know, it would kill the
1: high. Yeah. Then you could stick it out. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I can't explain how shitty of a feeling it is to feel like you don't have that control because it's not just I'm hungry. It's I'm shake. I, I always had low blood sugar and that. If you can, re- if anybody can relate to that feeling of, of like right before you faint, when you're, when you got the flu or something, it's that feeling constantly, especially when I woke up. So my big thing was, like I said, I wasn't a big, uh, a loud boisterous drunk. I I did not like being drunk, which is the great irony, I did not like the lack of control, but I was just constantly drinking throughout the day so that I could feel as though I wasn't shaky about to collapse because you know my body just my body was done. You know what I mean? I just I was totally, totally exhausted by the end. Wow. How long were you in rehab for? I did thirty days. It was supposed to be twenty-eight, but I got in I got into the rehab after five PM. <laughs> so that mm-hmm. didn't count as a day. That really pissed me off. <laughs> Have you been sober ever since? I have. I just crossed 4 years uh June 21st. Wow, congrats on that. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I just crossed 5 years in May. I'm congratulations. I'm so excited for 5. I feel like 5 is going to be one of the ones that that just makes you feel different. Is that true? It that's what everybody says, and I thought it was bullshit, but it really is true. I felt that with 3 kind of Three was one where I was like, "Holy shit!" It's been three years, and then now I'm like, "It's been a whole high school career or a whole, <laughs> a whole college <laughs> career." If you're just doing the the four. So, what do
0: you do to manage your addiction? How do you stay on the right side of things?
1: I. It's different for everybody, right? Um, yep. Twelve step programs weren't for me. I tried them. Um, they brought them into rehab, which I was so thankful for. P.S. Rehab is beautiful. Rehab is excellent. It is also very scary going and I'm not denying that. Um, oh yeah. I would get, I miss rehab so often and that doesn't relate to, to me being nervous about my, my um, recovery at all. It's just, it, I made, it, it's one of those places where it's like a summer camp you're, it's like pressure cooked to make really, really close friends really quickly. And I've never laughed as hard as I did in rehab i never thought as hard as i did in rehab i never cried as hard as i did in rehab it's a (laughs) it's an absolutely beautiful place i cannot stress that enough but anyway tangent but i um they brought uh 12-step meetings into rehab which i really appreciate at the time they weren't for me after what works for me now is listening to podcasts honestly is a big thing i also i have sober people in my life i'm which now has turned into a very blessed thing. I have a lot of other sober people in my family. You know, my aunt who helped me get into rehab who pulled huge favors. She works in recovery. She pulled huge favors to get me into rehab. Um uh, my dad is pushing 35 years sober so I can talk to him about stuff. I'm I have a ton of sober people that I can talk to if there's ever a, a moment of oh shit or I'm not sure. Um, Mm -hmm. but I just, I make sure I think about it a lot, you know what I mean? And I make sure I think about the full spectrum of it. I still have my journal from, uh, rehab. And if I notice that I haven't thought about sobriety for a while, then I'll kind of pop that open and just relive what craziness was going through my head during those 30 days. And that's what really works for me is, is listening to other sober people. Talking to other sober people, helping other sober people, which is something that you can accomplish in a twelve-step or other kind of like a open meeting uh, type recovery. Yeah, it's a whole club built for that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, I think the 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 people who started uh, AA forever ago, I think they nailed it. It's the the core of it is just talking to other people and not being so foolish as to think is that you're alone. That and or unique, you know. Like I used to
0: think, it's just not going to work for me. I'm too special. I'm too addicted. I've seen that stuff on TV. It doesn't. But but none of that is true. That's all bullshit. That your mind tells you when it's saying you're not addicted. uh, You're too far
1: gone. You can't be helped.
0: All the work is done. You can go plug into any one of those programs, and if you work it, it'll work,
1: yeah, exactly, and you know, similar to what you were just saying, the your brain will try to trick you and say, "You know what like like what happened with me i'm I'm just in my twenties, you know what i mean i'm just yeah I'm just working in in Manhattan, and this is what people do it's it's not me i I am special in that I drink like an alcoholic, I use like a addict, but I can get out of this."
0: Yeah, I had the same thing, and I talked about this with Anna as well, you know, that it took that random encounter where the person on the train told her, you're anorexic, and I know it, you need to get some help, right? Like, I I would have moments of that where I would be sick to my stomach, puking, and then like, but I would still think, oh, I just did too much today, you know, normally I'm fine, or I would get little glimpses that I had a big problem, or Someone would say something that kind of pulled the veil up for a second, but
1: I thought I was fine for a really long time, and I wasn't. I, I had a similar thing. The, um, the DJ that worked Friday and Saturday nights at that bar in New York City that I was working at, yeah. uh, he was a sober fellow from alcohol and he was older. He's probably 10 years older than me. And he saw me. You know what I mean? Like he, he saw similar to what what you said in the podcast with Anna, where somebody at the bar just said like, oh, this guy's on. And then they called it, they nailed it and it pissed you off. (laughs) He, Brian, the DJ, thank you so much, Brian. He saw me and kind of, he was very gentle. He, he didn't say, Hey, go get help. He said, I see your patterns. I can see What's going on here? If you ever want to talk, which is the first time it was the first time that anybody's ever offered me just to talk about it, and it scared the absolute shit out of me. And then there was one night I was all sorts of fucked up, and I I called him. I said, "Brian, I need I need to just sit down and talk." And he said, "All right, great. Meet me at this cafe some you know somewhere in uh, Manhattan." And I walked in, met him. It was like two or three in the morning or some shit, and he sat down. I remember he, he got just like a big, like, like charcuterie board platter. I'll never forget. It was, it was crazy to me because I could not even think about eating because I was still fucked up. And he just talked me through it. He said, listen, if you think you don't have control, if you're questioning, if you're an alcoholic, you probably are. You know what I mean? Like if, if it's made its way to your doorstep that, oh shit, I probably don't have control. You probably don't have control. And he he was great. He he explained to me what meetings are, that there's different kinds of meetings. You know, movies and television makes meetings out to be like a bunch of sepia toned or gray-toned people <laughs> in like a sad and dusty room. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's it's just not that all the time. It's he he explained to me that there's meetings where you don't have to talk, or if it comes to you, say, no thanks, I'm just here to listen. There's there's meetings where just one person with a ton of experience is talking and there's websites where you can just go look and it'll say, yep, this one's open to the public. This one's closed. Closed still means you can go. It just means that they want you to be a part of their group. Um, yeah. And he explained all that shit to me. Unfortunately, it didn't stick for me at the time, which is fine. You know, the point it is takes it a while. It takes a while. And he also <laughs> at the end of that that meeting that him and I had at the diner, he was like, hey, P.S., it would be sweet if you came not. Absolutely loaded. Next time, I tried to cover up the fact that I was drunk. Like, no, no, no. I'll just drink some water, Brian. I'm not hungry. But yeah, that that first time of like being seen for what you suspect that you are is a very scary thing, but it's an important milestone, I believe.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is, and it's good to hear your story, Tim. You know, I like to get the message out there and just let people know that there's all different methods. To managing your addiction, you know, because and I've said it a million times on this show before. I didn't know where to look, so I want to give people options of where to look. Or maybe I did know where to look, and I just didn't want to. I don't know. But Tim's recovery looks different from mine. Me, I, I tried a lot of different things, and nothing worked. So I had to indoctrinate myself deep into uh, recovery and working in recovery and having people work with me in recovery. It's an it's an everyday part of my life and i need that level of care to manage my addiction and tim i mean tim says he can listen to podcasts and be okay and i think that's fucking
1: awesome <laughs> at least for now i'm the the thing about sobriety is that it can it can change quick you yeah. know what i mean and, and and i know that so if for right now that's what works for me it might not work for me in in a month and i think that's the important thing about remaining in recovery is being aware that shit can change on a dime and it's up to you to to roll with it and be flexible. Some there's sometimes I just need to see this might sound fucked up but I just need to see like a like a a heavy meeting if that makes sense. I need to see some 24-hour chips being given out. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I need to see people who are early early in recovery because I need to see how how hard it can be and how bad it can get and that's kind of the point of meetings is like what I said earlier you take what you need and you leave the rest. I'm floating towards a dangerous time of recovery, and I'm aware of that. Once you get towards five years, your brain might start telling you, hey, listen, you actually, you got this. You can probably, you know what I mean? Yep. And so it's ever important to stay on guard and to continue to to protect yourself.
0: A hundred percent. And Tim, let's talk about loud sounds. Now, you have recorded the latest singles with Greg Thomas, a guest on our show, yes? Yeah, that's right. Goth Greg, our guy. <laughs> <laughs> talk about that experience it must have been awesome we had greg thomas that, and uh, to our listeners that's greg thomas from end and we've also had chris teddy from the world is a beautiful place on the show and they run Bullet studios together
1: yeah they um they're great people we had uh loud sounds had released music right when covid started right when loud or when uh when lockdown started um and it was just all self recorded in you know home studios here in Rhode Island and mixed by friends and stuff like that. And it's fine. It did its job for like a first release. But we wanted to progress with with new people. We wanted producers. You know what I mean? We wanted um people that would help us grow as songwriters and as a band and as a cohesive unit. So we reached out to Greg at Silver Bullet and luckily he um he saw something in us in in our in our first release Sundad. Um and he asked us to come down and we just worked on those three songs just kind of as like, uh, feeling each other out, if that makes sense, you know? So here, here's what it could be like is, is kind of the deal of this is what he's showing us what he can do and what his studio can do. And we're showing him what kind of songs we can write at where we are right now as a band. And it worked out. We, we get along great. They have a lovely studio. It's insane there. It's like, a it's like a horror cave. It's just covered in thousands of DVDs and Blu-rays and 4K shit. I'm not really a big movie guy. Um, And posters and masks and cobwebs <laughs> and skeletons and shit. It's a goth dungeon. It sounds like a haunted house slash studio. I love that. Yeah, there's like bears. It's in the middle of Connecticut, like set way off the road. So there's like bears and shit in the backyard. It's an awesome place. <laughs> it feels like um, they do a great... <laughs> they do a great job of making you feel at home there. And it in that it feels like when you are 12 going to a sleepover, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's just, it's, it's always so much fun to go there. And, and you, we learn a lot from, from Greg who works with us one-on-one, you know, he's been in these insane band. Like he, he was in misery signals. He was in shy Hulud. He's an end right now. He's a part of a, a folk project called murmur. And he's, huge into uh, movie scores and stuff like that. And he just has this immense knowledge of music that we don't have. And that's what we're looking for in a producer is somebody who has a different brain than us, who hears music different than us. And it's really worked out. And I think it shows in those three songs. How much intervention does Greg have? And how much
0: are the songs done before you get there? I want to understand how much he's stepping in
1: and say, "Maybe try this, or maybe try that." the producer angle give us some details. We go there with I would say eighty percent of a song done and demoed. Our singer Cal, who writes most of the stuff and he just he's in his little lair at his house. he's doing all the like electronic stuff that you hear on the songs and all like the vocal pads that's how he expresses himself that's how he is creative is just going into the lab and working so he works really hard on these demos and they sound well finished and then when we uh give them to greg he'll just kind of chew through them and say "Ooh, i don't know if you know for example if this part's meandering a little bit too much i don't know if this is the strongest part to have as a as a vocal melody for a chorus you know what i mean he's he's been doing this for what 18 years so he Knows much better than us what works and what doesn't work. So, although we have a very completed demo sound, it's, I mean, I think, so right now we're, go- we just finished pre production for a full length record with them. And I think there's only one song of the 10 that is completely untouched. that that was was given the Greg stamp of approval of yep, that one's that one's fine. That's gotta feel good, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There, you know, some of them a little bit, some of them a lot a bit. Um there's one song in particular that what was written as the chorus wasn't what would be the best chorus and so it was rewritten a bit in there. And so yeah, I'd say about like eighty, eighty percent demoed when we get there. And then Greg kind of goes through and and chews us up and spits us out.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that's a good thing. I mean, some outside perspective
1: from such a seasoned veteran in music, it's only going to make things stronger. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. It's what you need. You absolutely need it. And especially the pre-production that we just did is so necessary to it's a time saver it makes a better album it makes better songs to have ears that aren't married to your thing right it's oh yeah un, it's the same as going to therapy you're talking to somebody who is unbiased who is not married to the thing and they're saying this is what i would do as somebody with more knowledge <laughs> you know what i mean and so it's a it's a beautiful thing to be able to go and and have somebody like Greg and have Chris there to be able to say, oh, you know what? This is really fucking cool. It would be a little bit cooler if blank, blank, blank. Right.
0: Well, you got to check it out, everybody. Index by Loud Sounds. And again, I'm going to put a song on our Spotify playlist, the New Scene 2022 Spotify playlist. But go check it out. You know, we've got Index, we've got Sundead, the 2020 record. You need to hear it. You need to and let's see, what else is going on? Oh, yeah, I want to talk about... Now, I saw... Tim, I saw Run the Jewels and Rage Against the Machine this past weekend at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, that's been all over the place. How was that? Unbelievable. Now, I wasn't going to go. I remember pricing tickets back in 2019, and I wanted to get good seats, and it was like $400 for two, I think. So I was like, ah, I'm not going to go. And I think a day before the show... My friend Kevin hits me up, and he's like, hey, I've got an extra ticket for the show. Do you want to go? And I was like, "Um, yes, free ticket. His friends were going to go, and then there was a COVID thing going on. They couldn't go. I was like, are you sure? I can, you know, if anyone needs anything, you want me to send someone some money? He's like, no, just come to the show. And I was like, of course, of course. So I went and, you know, anyone that's been to Madison Square Garden, it's giant. They have hockey games there. They have Knicks games there. It's, it's gigantic. And Run the Jewels were great. Uh I dig them. I think I discovered them in 2017 when Run the Jewels 3 came out. And I remember I was newly sober. I was getting into all different kinds of music again. I was listening to a lot of rap at the time. And Run the Jewels 3 and 2 were on constant rotation. And they play, they have this song on Run the Jewels 3. I forget the name, but they say, they keep saying Run the Jewels live at the Garden, you know, and they're talking about Madison Square Garden. Yeah. And they played that song and they're like, when we wrote this, we weren't even close to being able to play the Garden. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were shooting their shot. They are you know what I mean? They were calling their home run. And they manifested it. And they were happy about it. And I was happy about it. It was a great show. And Rage Against the Machine, I mean, what can you say? They're legendary.
1: I've seen a, One show at Madison Square Garden, it was Death Cab for Cutie, and opening for them was Explosions in the Sky. And I think both of those bands are wonderful. Explosions in the Sky filled the room, if you know what I mean. Their sound filled the room. It was as if they were playing to the back of MSG. Death Cab, who is a wonderful band, and I really, really am into, it, it just wasn't right for MSG. It didn't fill the room right. I cannot imagine how much Rage Against the Machine filled that room. They're per- they're made for it. The, seeing a band like that
0: live, I don't go to shows that big very often. It's almost otherworldly, you know, because these guys are like legends that you only see or hear about on YouTube videos or whatever else. But to see them was unbelievable. And they had such a minimal setup. It was like a regular band setup that you'd see at St. Vitus or any other Yeah venue. There wasn't the fake stack of Marshall empty cabinets or anything. (laughs) It was just a regular band setup. Now, Zach injured his foot I think a couple days into the tour, so he's kind of planted up front Mm -hmm. sitting down. And I, I thought somehow that might take away from the show. Not even a little bit. Not even a tiny bit. It was so powerful. Great varied set. He doesn't he didn't talk at all between the songs at all. Like, uh, you know, there wasn't like any of the political commentary or anything, but they had this great display behind them and it would display the things Zach would usually say. They talked about some protests that happened outside of Madison Square Garden back in the 30s, I think, and they had different imagery.
1: It was really cool. That's so awesome, man. That's something that that lends to the honesty thing I was talking about earlier. These are just four guys in a band and they're just doing what they're feeling and I I actually watched a a video that you posted on your story of watching like Tom go up to Zach in the middle of a song and just how they were like interacting on stage it just felt so like raw and cool and real it made me so happy it made me so happy because I know that band has had their own internal
0: issues in the past and there's been periods of inactivity but everyone was having fun Tom would be interacting with everybody and then at the end they all sat down on the thing Zach was sitting on and they just had their arms around each other and was waving to everybody. It made me really happy. And and just the whole time I was thinking like, it's so crazy. Like they started like any other band. We knew Zach from inside out and look like now they're playing Madison square garden to 20,000 plus people. And it was just like, it, it was a really cool experience. So shout out to my friend, Kevin Vicioli and his wife, Anna for inviting me to the gig. Unbelievable experience.
1: Really glad I went. That rules, man. I'm happy for everybody that gets to experience them right now. I feel like this is the perfect time. You know what I mean? There's a lot going on, obviously, and there's a lot of anger. And I think this is when a band with a message like theirs is perfect for a crowd. It was. I got chills. Like the the things they were talking about,
0: and the things they were bringing to people's attention, and the imagery. It is
1: more important now than ever in the times we're living in. It's also cool that they're doing work with uh Hate 5 6 that he's shooting all the shows at MSG at least. I think he might be doing like East Coast ones with them. He's done some of them and that is
0: awesome because this just watching that whole journey with how much he loves rage against the machine and, you know, they announce the shows and all of Sonny's fans reached out to the band to the point where Sonny was like, they're aware of me. It's okay. You don't have to keep messaging them. (laughs) (laughs) And for him, his dream to be realized, and now filming that band who inspired him to do his whole thing, it's a great circle of life type thing. That's beautiful. Well, we're out of time. We are out of time for this episode, but it has been a great episode. So Anna, I want to thank you once again for coming on the show. And Tim, I want to thank you for joining me today and sitting in on the guest host chair and sharing your story as well. Thank you so much, Keith. Absolutely. And we're back next week. I'm here every week, every week, sometimes two times a week, no matter what. Next week, new episode, new guest. It's going to be another great one. So get ready. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time.